Hello, Jesse. Good to be here. As I mentioned, you're successful as an economist, a playwright. You understand the thermodynamic aspects of sustainable development. Was there a time, was there ever a time when you felt pressured to pick one discipline, Tim, and stick to it? Oh, yes, definitely. No, I was, uh, I was always, as a kid, I was always supposed to be, I think it was a mathematician I was supposed to be. So when my maths grades came back good, my dad was pleased. <laughs> and, uh, and, and all of this other stuff you're interested in, Tim, you know, just get on with the maths. That'll be fine. Um, no, I mean, to be honest, my, my parents were very encouraging of that, of that sense of interest in, in a lot of different things. But I think generally speaking, our education system tends to favor those who, who pick one horse and, and stick with it. Um, sometimes to the detriment of society, I would say. Does your, do your skills and your experience in, um, in arts, particularly in creative writing, serve you well in, um, the technical sciences and, and in your efforts to find sustainability solutions? Well, I would definitely say they've kept me sane sometimes, and that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, I I always used to think actually of my play, in the early days. I used to think of my playwriting basically as a as a sanity strategy. Mm-hmm. You know, I was kind of engaged in this sort of scientific debates about sustainability, and I was at my day day job was was teaching kids and doing research, and um, and it was all very, I guess you could say it was all very left brain. You know the the right brain, the creative side didn't yeah. have uh, much much chance to come into that into that day job, and so what I found, and I I've, I think I've always found this is the right the right brain for me has been really important, as partly as a sort of sense of relief from all that kind of you know logical rational intellectual stuff, but also actually and increasingly I think this it's really it's it's a really crucial underpinning for doing the left brain stuff mm. well is to have a place where you, you can escape from it where you can be creative when you where you can think more in human terms than in terms of you know kind of equations and formulae so so it's always been i think um certainly to me personally it's been important but i also think it has a it has a place in our in our conventional education systems to teach our kids to be creative and to, and to access that creative side of themselves. There was a moment for you which um, affected the rest of your life, I think, certainly the rest of your career. That was the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. Um, what was your reaction to that and how did it, it um, change your career path? Yes, it, it did actually. I mean, I had at that stage, I'd I'd done a PhD, and and it was somewhere between physics and philosophy. But I had also developed my playwriting interest to the point where I had sold a play to the BBC. Yeah, and I kind of thought, well, hey, here we go. I'm going to uh-huh. be a playwright, and I moved to London to be a playwright. Um, <clears throat> then I got the first check from the BBC. And I realized I was going to have to do something, <laughs> something alongside playwriting to sustain myself, at least for a little while. So I was basically, just, you know, kind of waiting on tables and doing all the, the jobs that you can do in your mid, mid 20s. Yeah. Um, and and then, as you say, reactor number four at Chernobyl melted down. And all of a sudden, I mean, the, the, at that point in time, the sense of a big nuclear reactor melting down and the radioactive waste going up into the atmosphere and being blown at that point because of the weather conditions back across the UK and landing on hill farmers 
and and basically radiating irradiating the sheep on hill farms in wales yeah. um and i happened to be there on one of these one of these hill farms at that point in time and and one of these sheep escaped actually <clears throat> and there, so everyone was sent out to try and capture this sheep that had escaped and was running around in the vegetable patch and then somebody some brave soul eventually caught it and was rugby tackling this sheep <laughs> and, and then somebody said put that sheep down it's radioactive um and it was you know it was kind of a joke but it was also the case it was a sort of realization that our technology had dangers that could travel across continents and could destroy lives and w- was destroying lives in the ukraine where the chernobyl reactor was and to me, I mean, to me, it was a point where I kind of thought, yes, I'm a playwright. I, I had a second commission for the BBC at that point in time. So I've been working on that. But as I say, uh, to make a living, I was doing all sorts of other jobs. And I suddenly thought, actually, I've got this other side of me. I've got these skills. Mm. I walked into the London offices of Greenpeace the next day, basically, and said, look, what what can you do with someone who's got some sort of skills in physics and mathematics and philosophy? And they set me working on the economics of renewable energy. So something a bit more benign than yeah. nuclear power. And that was it kind of overnight, almost accidentally, I became, yeah, an accidental economist. Huh. One of your radio plays actually, um, takes on that theme the one about Beethoven how accidental events can define our lives did did you see a parallel between that and what had happened in your life uh yes definitely I I I mean I I think the interaction between my plays is a very sort of fluid one and I'm sometimes not even conscious of it so I can't remember that link personally but I'm glad that you picked it up um (laughs) the plays were a place where I could think more freely where I could do things slightly differently and that that sense of a a kind of a link between sometimes a conscious link between the work that I was working on as a scientist or as a as a sustainability professor um and and then I would use the plays to explore the issues in a way that I couldn't as a scientist and then sometimes yeah as you say there I think there are there are links with the the sort of ways in which your own life changes and and that's definitely something you draw on as a as a writer. I'm talking to Tim Jackson, Professor Tim Jackson from University of Surrey. He's in New Zealand, uh, taking part in a number of events over here. He's an economist, a playwright, and a champion of sustainability. And for people who haven't come across your work before, Tim, uh, you have had a lot of global attention for your books that call out consumerism and the relentless pursuit of economic growth can you briefly explain why perpetual growth is unrealistic and 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 why it won't solve the big problems of our times in your view well i suppose you know in the most obvious sense it's a finite planet the planet doesn't go doesn't get any bigger it doesn't go on getting bigger and 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 the assumption is that the economy does go on getting bigger and an economist will turn around and tell you, yeah, but it's just the money part of the economy that's getting bigger, Tim. It doesn't have to be the material part. But when you look in reality at what the economic growth is doing, it's pulling materials continually through the system. It's increasing the wastes and the emissions into the planet. And, and we know that it actually, although it might in some place be slowing down a little bit, 
the impact is still getting bigger on the planet. We're still increasing our carbon emissions or, or barely keeping them stable. We're still destroying biodiversity nature we're still deforesting uh, great swathes of the earth we're still polluting the oceans in some ways in ways that we we don't even understand exactly how we're doing it and so this idea that we can go on having more and more and growing and growing our economies you know it's it's fundamentally at odds with the finite nature of the planet in a way that interestingly kids understand huh. And they understand better sometimes than economists and politicians do, um, uh, but but that's the that's the general that's the general area of work that that I took on actually when I was economics commissioner on the Sustainable Development Commission in in the UK, and and I sat down with the chair of the commission, Jonathan Porrett, um, on, almost on my first day as a commissioner, yeah. and he sort of said to me, you know, what what do you think we'll, we'll do while you're economics commissioner and um, and between us, we came up with this idea that actually that I, the, the limits to growth debate, which goes right the way back to the 1970s, had sort of disappeared from the political arena by about the early 2000s when I was appointed as, as uh, economics commissioner. And, and so we decided actually at that point to, to begin a program of work looking at that fundamental conflict finite planet ever-growing economy what can you possibly do about it and it's a you know it's one of again another another of those moments i guess which sort of changed the course of my life because as you say that piece of work that that culminated from that prosperity without growth uh, opened all sorts of doors and did and did increase the the visibility of that debate across the world um in the intervening years so it's been um <clears throat> It's been a fascinating debate, and it's one that we have not yet solved, I think I can say without fear of contradiction. Yes, are you surprised when you see political parties going into election campaigns uh, on a platform of economic growth will solve our problems? Yeah, um, growth, growth, growth. It's like a mantra, and both main political parties in the United Kingdom came out with that last year and sort of were almost competing with each other to be the people who could Mm. be most associated with the idea of growth so and, so what should you know, we what should we look at instead i mean growth is easy to measure um yeah which is it's easy to measure in someone yeah it's, it's easier to measure that that single measure of the what's called the gdp the gross domestic product it measures if you like it measures the busyness of the economy it measures how much we're producing how much we're consuming and and it is as you say it's easy to measure but actually you know, we've known for quite a long time that it's a very limited measure of what progress really is. In fact, Robert Kennedy, back in 1968, gave a speech in his presidential campaign, ill-fated presidential campaign at the time, um, where he said, you know, pointed out all the things that were wrong with measuring the GDP, all the things it left out, the destruction of the rainforests and the pollution of the oceans, and all the things it included in it, like the creation of of the arms race and and the guns and that we sell to our kids as toys to glorify violence, and he ended up saying, you know, it measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. So hmm. it, it is a very simple measure, but it's not a very good one. 
we may not be able to just science ourselves out of the climate crisis. What role, if any, should art play in climate change? Well, I think in a way this goes back to what I was saying. And of course, I'm drawing on my own personal experience. But I think that that idea that actually, you know, the left brain logical part of us is a very dry place to live. And it's it's really useful for analysing problems, but it's not so good when it comes to the creative work that we have to do. It's not so good when you're thinking about, you know, where can we go that's different? You have to sort of break down convention. You have to burst out of the, the kind of rational cage and you have to begin to think, What's possible? What what could it be like? What would we like it to be like? Where, what do we want it to be like? And and I think art is is very good at that. It, it, it's a place where we can where we can engage in vision for the future. We can we can think about a different kind of world, and we can think about it outside the confines of all the rational thinking that we're trained into using to address these problems. We can think in a different way. So I think it has that function and then i think there's another there's another function which which for me is very important but it's very it's a very interesting contrast between my scientific work and my playwriting work which is that you know i i I often thought when when i was working as an environmental activist that we have this tendency to kind of to to avoid conflict to flatten the conflict landscape, I think I would describe it. This, mm. this sense that, you know, we can have our cake and eat it. We can change the world and it'll all be better. It's a very, very simple process to get from here to there. All we need is a few policies. And in a sense, I think that's what I was trying to do with Prosperity Without Growth when I was an economics commissioner was put all the arguments down on paper, present them to governments and then wait for government to make all the changes that were blindingly obvious to make. But of course, what playwriting does, what drama does, is it immediately, its its lifeblood is actually conflict. It's one point of view and another point of view. And those two points of view coming into contact with it, conflict with each other through the drama. And so drama is a kind of journey where the protagonist sets out in one direction and then immediately gets sideswiped by an antagonist who wants something different. And then you go through this sort of processes of conflict and reversal and and a final battle before the journey home towards resolution. And so drama has this sense of conflict and resolution through conflict that activism sometimes tends not to have. It, It tends to you know, kind of think, well, all we have to do is put out the logical argument and things will change, everything will be mm. fine. Drama recognises that actually you have opposite sides of different arguments. And as a dramatist, you know, that that actually was one of the joys of being a playwright because I could, I could invent characters yeah. who were completely opposite, who believed completely different things than I believed. And I could bring them to life and I could bring them into interaction with the characters who believe things like I believed. And then I could see what happens in the play. And, and that's a function that art can do, I think, I think very well. It can, it can bring that sense of resolution through conflict rather than this dry scientific pursuit of progress through truth.
not that truth isn't important, but that truth is much more complicated. Yeah. Drama teaches us that. You encourage us to think about a new commodity, um, the commodity of care and concern of one human being for another. Can you tell us about that particular commodity and, and why it's a useful a way to think about climate change and some of our other equity problems in the world? Yeah, it's um, it, prosperity. It's, it came really, that idea came from thinking about what prosperity is. And of course, we, we, we think mostly about prosperity in terms of money, at least in, in our society we do. In previous societies, interestingly, we didn't always think of prosperity in those terms. It was just prosperes is where prosperity comes from in accordance with our hopes and aspirations. So when life is going well, then we think of ourselves as prosperous mm. in, in very broad terms. But we've cashed that out almost literally in terms of, of, of wealth. So we think about prosperity as wealth. But there was, you know, there was a very interesting lesson from the pandemic, which was that there is, there's no wealth really without health. And, and that <laughs> kind of got me thinking about prosperity as health rather than as wealth. And, and when you think about it in those terms, you're immediately drawn into a different, a different metaphorical universe. Instead of a universe where prosperity means having more and more and more, we know that when you think about prosperity as health, health isn't about having more and more. It's about a point of balance. Certainly, yeah, sure. And I admit this, when you don't have enough, when the harvest has failed again and you're on the brink of mm. starvation, then a little more food is good for us. But actually, the World Health Organization tells us that more people today die of the diseases of overconsumption, of, of obesity and cardiovascular disease and diabetes. More people die of having too much than having too little around the world. And that's, that's a sense in which we've kind of lost this framework of balance, not too little, not too much. And, and that's a framework which demands our attention to each other. It demands our attention to our own health. It demands our attention to the health of other people. And that's where this ethic of care becomes a core principle for our economy if prosperity is health instead of wealth then the economy should be about care and and that that gives us a whole different way of thinking about the construction of the economy and unfortunately it's one that's totally in conflict with with our ethic of kind of efficiency and profit maximization and the speed of throughput and and so capitalism, it turns out, doesn't do care very well. But thinking about the economy through the lens of care allows us to think about each other, uh, our relationships with each other, the strength of our communities, the importance of um, addressing inequality, the the um, the investment in our healthcare systems, the investment in social care, it allows us to think about the economy from first principles, from that simple idea that without health, there is no wealth. 
I've just got to ask because I know people will be wondering <clears throat> as they listen, uh, New Zealand has embarked on something sometimes referred to as the well-being economy or the well-being budget. Um, are we on the right track? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, going back to that point about the GDP not being a very good measure, measure the things that matter. And that's really what the Living Standards Framework and the well-being budget um, is attempting to do. It's attempting to escape from the tyranny of money. And, and that is a good thing. 